In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the internationally acclaimed OGGN HSE podcast. We're proud to bring on the best and often the most innovative guests to discuss subjects that are not only relevant to the oil and gas industry and HSE, but interesting and frequently unique. I think you'll find today's show no exception and we'll get right to it. But first, I want to welcome a new and permanent sponsor for this show, a company called Knowledge Vine. And folks, just like our guests who come on the show, this is the best and most innovative and unique leader in human performance improvement training and technologies. KnowledgeVine is committed to reducing the frequency and severity of workplace errors by helping organizations leverage technology to easily create a sustainable safety culture. KnowledgeVine, the evolution of human performance. Learn more at KnowledgeVine.com. Today, my guest on the show is Paul Gibbs. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> well, I could hide everything and not let people know some of the technology issues we've had, but we've definitely had some technology issues here, and we're hoping we've got them fixed now. I really appreciate your patience. Folks who are listening will listen to this as being flawlessly produced and have no idea the trials and travails that we went to. Paul, you're actually the managing partner and founder of Extreme Tank Technologies. Is that right? That is correct. And Extreme Tank Technologies and you, you're located in the garden spot of the world and the garden spot of Texas, Midland, Texas, right? That's right. That's right. The garden spot. <laughs> well, for those who don't know, and most everyone listening will know that's a little bit tongue in cheek, unless you consider the world's greatest reserve of oil as a garden spot. And that's definitely what we have in the Permian and in Texas. And I think the rest of the world, we're grateful for that. So you're pretty much a local boy out there, aren't you? Right. I've lived in Midland now for, I believe, like 18 years. I was raised about 45 minutes east of here. There's a town called Big Spring. I was raised about 15 miles northeast of there. I was raised cotton and cattle. That's, that's what we did growing up was farm cotton and raise cattle. I wound up, you know, the oil business is all around us. So there's a pretty good chance you're going to go to work in the oil business because cotton was 40 cents a pound. So. Yeah, right. So the cattle. So, you know, for years and years and years, we've had nothing but a drought for 30 years now. So so people can definitely, with that picture, the garden spot aspect of it. So you're not exactly a rookie or a novice in the oil and gas industry, right? Right. 1979 is when I started in the oil and gas business. That's when I graduated high school. And I went to a local college there and I worked in the oil and gas business to get my way through, you know, in the college and in those days, I was welding, welded in a shop, and we built a lot of equipment for fracking and cement jobs and stuff like that. And Now, hang on. You said 1979, 1980? Right. I didn't think anybody had heard the word fracking in 1980. Oh, yeah. There was diesel frack and acid frack. It just, the volume of it was a couple of 18-wheeler truckloads. It wasn't half a million barrels or a million barrels. But, you know, they've always pumped something out into the formation to help loosen up and release the oil it's just you know nowadays they go on there and they bust up rock 
Right, right. This is in a pull oil, what most of it is, back in those days. And there was some in the wolf camp. We didn't call it wolfberry. There was a sprayberry in the wolf camp. They were all straight hoes, and the fracking was nothing like it is today. I mean, like I said, two 18-wheeler loads of diesel or some type of acid frack to clean out a well to cut the paraffin and stuff. That's what it was in those days. So you went to work for a company nobody's ever heard of called Mobile? Yeah, Mobile Oil Company, Mobile Exploration and Production U.S. It's called MEPAS. I went to work in South Howard County. The field was called the Chalk Field. That was about 83-ish in that time frame. I worked for them for about 10 years, and at the end of it, they were selling everything. Matter of fact, Gulf sold everything, Exxon sold everything, Shell sold everything, Conoco, Mobile, Phillips Petroleum, all these big companies. As a matter of fact, you can put a lot of them's names together nowadays. There's Conoco Phillips, there's Exxon Mobile. They all merged. These companies all sold everything in the Permian Basin. And I can remember when the, the Odessa American newspaper said the last one out turned out the lights. Yeah. It was the headlines. And I lived here. I was born and raised here, you know. So I was like, wow, looks like I'm going to need to do some, something else. But I actually got a job for Fina Oil and Chemical Company at the refinery in Big Spring, Texas. So, And how long were you there? I was there for 25 years. Okay, so let's back up. Let's back up just a little bit. So you're working for mobile for roughly 10 years or whatever. You're in production. You're working out in the field. What was your job there? Started out in the gang as a roustabout. Became a relief gang pusher. Became a lease operator. Wound up in Andrews, Texas. Working in the non-core properties, which means things that were for sale. That's what they called non-core. That was their fancy way for saying this stuff is for sale. And field technician was actually a production foreman on part of the stuff. And it was all short-lived, you know. And it wasn't long. It all sold. And they offered me a job in Kynosa, Texas at the Kynosa gas plant. And I didn't want to move my family to that part of the world. And I didn't think it was going to last long either. That's another reason. As they sold more stuff, it was a union job. More people with more time would come in and bump you out. So I just took a package, and I went to work for the Big Spring Refinery for Fina Oil and Chemical Company. And you didn't plan on being there that long. Okay, so this downturn hits, as I recall, it probably started somewhere about 1991. I think they were, as you said, turning out the lights probably in about 1993. But prior to that... You're working production out in these fields using watersheds to bring oil out of wells that were even 50, 60 years old, right? Oh, yeah. Secondary recovery is what we were doing. We were pushing water into the ground with water injection wells and using produced water. The water's just circulating 200 foot away or so is a pump jack pumping a lot of water and gaining some oil. And it was separated. You use that water again, go back into the ground. You're just repeating over and over and over again the same thing trying to pressure up that zone wash the oil off the rock or the dirt whatever it's sitting on and get it to where that well bore is and this is something that's been around for a long time and most of these wells were 1800 foot to 3200 foot in depth they were queens and glorietta zones and i worked there for approximately 10 years with mobile and we handled lots and lots and lots of water because everything we did was secondary recovery. Okay. And so there was a problem that needed to be solved in this secondary recovery. And in fact, ironically enough, it was exacerbated. You told me an interesting story. 
Mobile had the rights in this field, but the guy they had the rights from, he wasn't real happy about that, so he wouldn't let you bring electricity into it. So you're having to operate off of generators and all that sort of thing. And you're losing a lot of oil because you can't properly separate it from the water, right? Right. We drilled two or three of these wells, and these were the deeper wells. This was when they figured out that the wolf camp would make 100 barrels a day and 150, 200 barrels a day, and they didn't fall off very fast. And it was a sweet crude, and it was a gravity of 40 versus 29. And anyway, this lease was, I don't know, 640 acres, 320 acres. We drilled three or four wells on it, or two or three wells on it, and had a tank battery, and we couldn't, didn't have electricity there. So all the vessels, of course, pneumatically dumped to each other and then to the tanks, but we had to have gasoline or diesel engines to pump the liquid. We had a gas engine for the pump jacks to run off of. And what happened was our last vessel going to the water tanks and to the oil tanks had dump valves on it. It's the heater feeder. The water dump valve kept on messing up and hanging up and dumping oil over to our water tanks. And we changed the diaphragm, I don't know, three or four times. We changed the valve. It was just one of those deals where it became, when you show up to work that morning, was someone go to that tank battery to see if any oil showed up today in the water tank. So we'd hire trucks that come out there. And of course, the water would be on the bottom of the tank. They'd haul off one, two, three loads of water. And they were supposed to stop once they hit oil. And then we could have an empty truck pump the oil or stuck the oil off and pump it into the oil tank. Well, it never was right. Like I said, told you before, they could get a free pocket knife at the disposal site if they bring them half a little, half a couple <laughs> of oil, you know. So we'd lose 50 barrels every time. And wow. this just happened time and time again. So I tell people this, it's weird. It's weird how my mind thinks, but I was asleep one night. I don't know if you say I dreamed it or what, but a way to go inside the tank and skim this oil off these water tanks. I actually woke up and I got up and I walked into the kitchen and stick figures. I drew up, you know, very fast, drew something up on a piece of paper. And the next morning I got up and went to work and I took that paper with me and I doodled and drew and kept on thinking, all right, yeah, it'll work. But where am I missing something? Where will it hurt something? Where will it stop something else? Where am I missing that it won't work? And I looked it over, and I looked it over, and I looked it over, and then I started asking people, and they're like, yeah, that'll work, man. And I went to a boss of mine, and he was the type of guy that if you had a good idea and he, and he liked it, let's go try it. And so we did. We went and built this tool, and we kind of had the oil field engineering way we built it and threw it in there, and sure enough, it worked. We were able to grab all the oil off the top of these water tanks from then on, and we didn't lose any oil going to a disposal site somewhere. So I knew I had this skimmer that really worked. Well, we were also using it for chemical treatment. We could go in backwards and release chemical at the surface. There was numerous tasks you can do with this tool if I had it in an oil tank. And this was something you designed. You were on bad oil and you have a 24-foot tall tank and you've got 23-foot 11 inches in it. You better go shut your wells in because you're fixed to put oil on the ground. Well. Your emulsion, your bad oils in the bottom of your tank where your pipeline is to remove to sell the oil. So you're in a predicament. You have to shut your wells in. Of course, nowadays, things have changed so much with these big horizontal wells. The last thing they want to do is shut them in. They don't ever come back right. They don't 
you've got a lot of water to get off of them. They don't flow like they did. You lose money. And so what these a lot of these people are doing today is they're giving that oil away, that bad oil in those tanks, or they're selling it for 20 cents on the dollar. With my tools in there, you can suck from 20 to 3 foot 11 inches. That's good oil. You can suck it down to where you actually hit bad oil, so that's at 4 foot. You've removed 20 foot of oil at market price. You never shut your wells in. You never take a chance on shutting your wells in. Now I can go backwards and inject chemical internally inside the tank. I never open a thief hatch. I don't have to pour chemical in from the roof of the tank and static electricity causing an explosion or a fire and everyone dying there. Another thing too is I removed 20 foot of good oil that was going to absorb my chemical shop. Now I just have four foot in there. So I inject that chemical in there. It's released at the surface of the four foot of the tank. It'll fall through the oil and of course, the chemical does what chemical does. It'll absorb into the water, adding weight to it, knocking it out. So used to be on those secondary recovery facilities, I'd it'd be a 48-hour ordeal on bad oil. And that was with a chemical man on site and barrels of chemical poured in there. And you fight it and fight it and fight it. Okay, so you're losing all this oil. I don't know if you're a religious guy or not, but you all seem to almost have had a religious experience. You wake up one night, come up with this idea, kind of sketch it out, and it's a design for a tool, which you later came to name the Extreme Tank Tool, and you took it to your boss. He said, let's try it, and it worked, right? Yeah, that's correct. So this is 19, 1990. 1990, and then they actually built a big facility and you actually got a patent on this. They built a big facility and they put your dream tank tool in there and it worked great, right? Yeah. They built a new saltwater water flood station that handled hundreds of thousands of barrels a day, you know, like 120,000 barrels a day or something like that. And it was engineered with all kinds of spillovers and skimming and separation and you name it. It had every kind of device in it you could imagine. It was 15 tanks or a dozen tanks. I can't remember. It was, it was a large facility. And my boss said, hey, let's, are there builders? Let's stick one of your tools in there as well. And so we stuck it in the tank. It was probably 10,000 barrel tank that was feeding, I believe it was six triplex pumps there. And they were big four and a half inch plungers on them. And anyway, 300 foot away was an oil tank battery. We just ran off that pump over to that oil tank battery. And we were able to test and see how much good it was doing people were guessing 16th of a barrel a day a quarter of a barrel a day an eighth of a barrel a day we wind up averaging about 13 barrels a day of oil off a water flood station wow well with that kind of success this patented technology i, I guess you became a millionaire right oh yeah yeah so what happened well what happened was is this was probably 91 92 once water flood station got put online and Big time downturn. I was selling sour crude oil for seven dollars a barrel. Mobile oil company, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, Gulf, you name them. They all sold every piece of property they had to permanent basin and left. But downtown Midland used to have all these major oil companies and all of a sudden downtown Midland was empty. And that's where the independence really came to be, came from. Yeah, because all the big boys moved out. All the big boys moved out, went overseas that money and 
I bounced around, wound up in Salt Creek for six months. Then I wound up in Andrews, Texas for six months and then basically no job at all. And I was one of the lucky ones. I got a job for Fina Oil and Chemical Company in a refinery in Big Spring, Texas. You were there for roughly 25 years? Yes, sir. And this invention of yours is where? I tell people it actually sit in the shoebox underneath my bed. I kept on working with this tool. In 1990, when I first developed the skimming process, I never heard of volatile organic compound. There was no infrared camera that I'd ever seen or anyone else in the oil field had ever seen either. Melting ice glaciers and methane gas being a greenhouse gas and the worst greenhouse gas that there is. I never did know what a greenhouse gas was. But I kept on working with this tool. And in about 2008, when all this knowledge came out, I went, you know, I've got something that's working internally inside a tank. I understand distillation. That's what I ran at the refinery. You know, I heated crude oil up to 685 degrees and 70% of it turned to a vapor and went up that tower. I understood that one up that tower didn't all go out the top. And that's what we do today in vapor recovery on tanks is we take suction off the roof of the tank and we think that's good enough. But if you understand and you know the knowledge of distillation, you need to be in the area where that distillation is taking place. And that's considered the flash zone. And in a tank, that's the area right above the liquid. Mother Nature's distillation is taking place there. The vapors are coming out. They travel up. Depending on that gas molecule and how heavy it is, if it is a heavy one, it will condense and go back to a liquid. It'll hit the wall of the tank, which is an obstruction, a demister pad. It'll hit the roof of the tank. Same thing. It turns to a liquid. Falls back down to your oil. Well, these oil guys say, well, I'd rather have it as a liquid. It makes me more money. Well, true. But it's volatile organic compound. It's not a drop of oil. It keeps on flashing and keeps on flashing. What happens is we're only removing what works and makes its way out of the tank. That's what happens today. I'm working five inches above the oil. I remove what flashes in the tank. I stabilize at the tank. And that's a tremendous safety issue, right? Right. These heavy molecules will build in volume because you're pumping more oil into this tank. Like I tell people, their cousins show up. Your tank, let's say it's set at four ounces and a compressor comes on, so it pressures up the four ounces. A compressor comes on, starts pumping the gas off this tank. Pressure starts falling down on its way to one ounce to shut off. These heavy molecules flash. The heavier the molecule, the bigger the expansion, by the way. goes to 13 ounces. Your thief hatch leaks. Your Nardo valves leak. Your compressor's running. You think, what? I got bad Nardo valves. I got bad thief hatches. And these oil companies will call people out there to work on They'll leak for, you know, 60 seconds or two minutes or 30 seconds, whatever that time frame might be. They think they have a problem. The thief hatches and the Nardo valves did what they were supposed to do. They right. relieved the pressure. Our problem is, is we're not capturing and stabilizing. We need to be internally inside that tank, right above the oil. I stop tanks from intermediate leaking. The number one cause of a tank fire, and this is from the insurance board. This is not from me making up this as I go along. It's a leaking thief hatch, static electricity. You say that you solved that safety issue right there. I solved that safety issue right there. That's fascinating, but I think it even goes beyond that couple other things I want to talk about. You also have 
figured out how to design it to detect and extinguish tank fires automatically and unmanned if they do happen. Right. I had this tool in the tanks and I was doing data research or data gathering and research on this tool, capturing gases in a tank for over a month before one day I went, you know, you know, dummy, that tool is sitting inside that tank five inches above oil. If lightning was to hit this tank and let's say the roof did blow off and the fire department shows up, they're going to get a stream of fire foam going and they're going to squirt it over and up into that tank. Well, you hope the tank's not too full because it'll splash oil out. And then you've got the whole world on fire. So there's a splashing effect, which, by the way, mine has zero. And I said, you're also putting fire foam through 1,800 degrees, 2,000 degrees, depending on how much wind and oxygen you're getting on that fire. You're destroying the fire foam. Fire foam is water, 97% water and 3% fire foam, more 3% mix. So it's turning the steam. In the fire foam business, it's about the bubble staying tied together and being uniform and being a seal. My tool will carry the fire foam internally inside the tank. The roof is not even blown off. And I want people to remember that because about 50% of these fires I see around here, fire department shows up, the roof's still on them, there's nothing they can do about it, but sit there and watch it burn and make sure nothing else catches on fire around it or try to prevent that from happening. But my fire foam, from a football field away, a fire truck can, if you run an inch and a half line, a football field away, they can pump into that inch and a half line. It will release the fire foam internally inside the tank. 100% efficient fire foam versus 30% efficiency if you're going to travel through the flames. Zero splash. Every gallon that's pumped there shows up there. The wind from this thunderstorm, the 60 mile an hour wind is not blowing half of it out into the pasture. Yeah. Exponentially, it picks up so much. You could actually have this set up what they call a calf system, compressed air foam system, basically stored fire foam. Think of a propane tank full of fire foam, and it's got 400 PSI of nitrogen push on it. You have a valve closed, and a camera says, hey, there's a fire. Citronoid opens one valve. I got 400 PSI, and I got four ounces it's going to. It's going to release inside that tank. In the 363 radius, I release the fire foam. It does not travel through the flame. It does not splash. And every gallon that's in that compressed air foam system shows up inside that tank. I literally can put out tank battery fires faster than you can dial 911 to report them. That's incredible. That's really fascinating. Okay, so those are health and safety and environmental issues. But the other thing, going back to, I think, this vapor recovery thing you're actually enhancing carbon capture too, right? I'm enhancing what they're doing. We're seeing a higher BTU. We're seeing, we went to a tank battery, pulled off the roof. It was pulling off the roof and we put our tool into the tank next to it. We pulled off the roof. We pulled off our tool. You just swap it back and forth, seeing what the difference is. Apples to apples. We caught bomb samples. We took them to the lab to get GC analysis run off. We're about 10% higher on BTU, oh, roughly 18% gain in volume. And you say, how are you getting 18% gain in a higher BTU? Well, it's real simple. I'm gathering gas that the whole world's been missing all this time. Not letting it escape into the atmosphere. Well, here's the deal. Distillation 101. I took crude oil to 685 degrees Fahrenheit, and I stuck it into a distillation tower in a refinery. At 685 degrees Fahrenheit, 40 foot up, I started condensing. Atmospheric gas oil, 
40 foot above that, diesel. 40 foot above that, kerosene. 40 foot above that, jet fuel. What didn't condense was my light naphtha going out the top, which was your base of gasoline. Same laws of physics apply inside that tank. It doesn't matter what oil company's name's on that sign out there. That gases that flash in your tank, you have different levels in that tank of different types of gas. The further down closer the liquid level you get, the heavier the gas. It doesn't rise and get out of that tank. It just never-ending cycle of flash and reflash and reflash. The only way you get it out of that tank is take a 24-foot tall tank and put 23 and a half foot in it. And that way it's sitting close enough to the roof that as soon as it flashes, it's out. But we get these 24-foot tall tanks and we have an 8-foot level in it. It's got to rise up 16 foot. It's got to hit the roof. It's got to work its way up a 4-inch opening, up another 2-foot riser in that 4-inch pipe, turn and come down to the compressor. I'm working 5 inches above the oil, the most volatile active area that there is in that tank. I'm removing what flashes, not what makes its way out of the tank. I stabilize it, and like I tell people, it doesn't matter who's in Washington, D.C. You're pretty much at net zero because, so how can you claim net zero? Well, the way I claim it is I'm working where the action's happening, and I'm taking care of every gas molecule that flashes. You're not today. You're not doing that. You're taking care of what makes its way out of the tank. Go open your thief hatch. Listen to it raining inside your tank. That's condensed gas molecules. They don't stay a liquid. They don't remain a liquid. They're a volatile organic compound. They will reflash again. Well, that's an incredible multifunctional tool that you've uh, built here. I would think this could really enhance uh, their ESG reports. Right. And it's like I tell people in the ENP world, I go to 500 barrel, 750 barrel, 1,000 barrel tanks, and I stop the madness. Well, I can also go to these 300,000 barrel floating roof tanks. No one captures on these things. The floating roof is considered good enough. Years ago, they came up with a mathematical figure and said they were 98% efficient. I attended a meeting here a few months ago. It was the South Coast AQMD, I believe. It's basically the state agency for California for air emissions. And this is their findings. This is their study. They went to a large refinery in California they went on the fence lines, the property lines. They hung cameras. They hung cameras in pump row. They hung it around the exchanger area, the stacks of the heaters, the tank farms. They did this big, expensive study. 53% of a refinery's emissions comes from tanks. 53%, not 98% like they were claiming, huh? Well, 53%. No, 98 They claim that these tanks are in floating roof tank is 98% efficient on keeping the vapors in control. And they're only 53%. 53% of a refinery's emissions. Oh, oh wow. That's got to be a lot more than. Yeah. The 47%, the remaining 47%, the majority of that was stack emissions. Well, CO2. Well, we've been talking stack capture for, what, 20 years now? Yeah. The other minute part was a compressor valve cap packing on a control valve, a, you know, a small leak detection and repair, LDAR stuff that they can fix in a week. It's the tanks that's the big monster. And these floating roof tanks, yes, they're good. Hydrostatic pressure, great idea. But they came out in the 20s or 30s. Now we want to get them more stricter. And so that's what your tool can do. 
I can actually go on the majority of these floating roof tanks underneath the roof on the outside diameters, the pontoons, the floating system that keeps it afloat. Outside of that where the seal is, there's a vapor space. I attach to the bottom of this tank's roof and the vapor space. And in this vapor space is where I work. If I remove the gases from there, there's no volume to build. There's no pressure to build, no differential to push out that tank seal. You can go online. You can look at these big tanks. And infrared, I believe the UPS man showed up. I started to say it. It sounds like maybe your dogs, and we are running up against the clock here. It sounds like maybe your dogs telling us it's time to wind this thing down here. Okay. I work in those tanks. I'm able to stop that madness from happening. So these people who've got these tanks for 30 metric tons a year, we can take it down to a permitted for that. We can take it down to a half a metric ton in case if you have a power fire, you have a permit for a half a metric ton. The gases off these tanks, carbon credits out the wazoo. We can take these gases. We can make power with it. Electricity's gone up for these plants. You can make your own power. Subsidize your power. You can subsidize your fuel gas treater with it and not have to be purchasing $6 a million BTU gas. You could use the gas that you're donating to God right now. <laughs> We're not just capturing what's leaking. We're capturing what's leaking and everything's being made and what that tank is holding in place. We're taking the gases out, not allowing any chance. Same thing on the tank fire. If there's a tank fire, we do not travel through the temperature. We do not put weight on that floating roof and could cause it to sink. We go in there underneath. We protect the tank seal. We separate fuel from flame. We do a lot of risk management this tool. It sure sounds like it does. sounds like your company's uh, aptly named Extreme Technologies. So again, Paul, I really appreciate you coming on the show, working with us through some of these technical issues we had that nobody else knows about. Before we uh, sign off here, uh, anything else you want to add? I wanted to thank you for letting me on, Jake. You can see my website. It's extreme, starts with X, X-T-R-E-M-E, extremetanktechnologies.com. Or you can call me at 432-770-2708. We'll definitely put that uh, website information in the show notes. I think you're on LinkedIn also, aren't you? Yes, LinkedIn underneath Paul Gibbs. Okay, all right. Well, we'll put your Paul Gibbs URL in there. And uh, speaking of LinkedIn, want to thank everybody for listening. Post us on LinkedIn and your other social media. Leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or there's a review link in the show notes. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Knowledge Vine's Oil and Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Knowledge Vine is your dependable partner for full-service human performance and safety consulting. Knowledge Vine, error reduction that works. And discover more about Knowledge by finding in the show notes their website link and other contact information, or you can simply reach out to me on LinkedIn, and we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.